In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. The toilet should be open in the park. The new restrictions are going to be coming in. So we need to open the more the people, yeah. There'll be more people. And have you been caught short? No, thank God. And what's the tip? Just don't drink beer and don't drink coffee or tea. And I tea. Yeah, I drink tea, don't I? Yeah, I go. Make sure yeah. you're near a loo. Before I leave the house. <laughs> yeah. Definitely more public toilets should be open. My sister's in Kill County Kildare and I, I haven't seen my nephews, so I'd like even maybe out just outside Dublin as well, maybe. Are you frustrated? Are you willing to go that extra mile or have you had enough? To be honest, I've had enough. It's been a long, long, long year, you know. Well, I'd say for men, we can duck and dive if you have a space that is away from the community. Women who are pregnant, how are they supposed to hold a ladder? I mean, at least sometimes, maybe nine times out of ten, we'll hold it. We get that, and I get exactly what you're talking about, because it's happened to me. And when you've been caught short, what'd you do? Where'd you go? I'd go down to a couple of friends of mine that had, uh, down back lanes, had uh, the, the, the mechanics. And I'd ask them, could they use that? Why do mechanics toilets are fairly dirty? For, you know, at least there was a Better than nothing. There. There you go. And yeah, and you know what? That's a very big issue what you're talking about there. And like, and, and it hasn't come out. And I remember saying that last year. The lack of open toilets. Yeah, and like, especially with pregnant women, pregnant young girls for the first time and stuff like that. Like, they need like to lead themselves. You get me? Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, while some of us are getting lazier during lockdown, others have never been so productive. Take a listen to this. So you're, like a lot of people, I suppose, you were a bit bored in lockdown. Uh, what made you think that your neighbours might be up for writing a novel with you? Well, <laughs> funny you should ask that because I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> uh, I was certainly uh, pretty well fed up with the lockdown and I was sitting one day looking out into the distance and I started to think of all things of a children's game called Consequences. Uh, which is a, a Victorian game, game for seven-year-olds, which I used to play as a child. It's all to do with adding bits to a story, bits of a, bit, uh, bits of a story or bits of a drawing. And uh, all of a sudden I realized a book could be written this way, that by someone could write the first chapter and then pass it on to a second person who could then write the second, who could then write the third, who could then write the fourth, could then write the fifth, etc., until you got to the end, which is what we did. I asked my neighbors... And I was really half expecting them to say no, but everybody took it on enthusiastically. And the next thing was, we had uh, uh, all these chapters written, and we got to the denouement period, and the question was, how do we finish it? So I said, well, let's all write the last chapter, and we'll pick the one most suitable to go in the book, which is what we did. And then uh, subsequently... Seems such a pity not to use the stuff that had been other stuff that had been written. We published all the denouements at the end of the book, so there are eleven different endings to this book, uh, which is perhaps quite unusual. Right. Okay. That's actually very postmodern. Uh, I would have thought having eleven <laughs> different endings uh, uh, to it. But w- w- when you started it out, did did you or somebody else devise a, a kind of a general plot for everyone to? Oh find? no, I did. Yeah. I, 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 uh, as far as the plotting, the, the uh, way it went, I did that. Also, I wrote the first chapter, which, which was in actual fact the preface, and I said lay out the location where it was to take place, 
which is which was a fictional house uh, not far away from the one I live in. Mm. Um, and I, I selected all the characters so that we knew we were all working from the same raw material, as it were. Right, OK. And did you know, I mean, you have some experience of writing, Alan. Yes, I've you? written a number of books. Yeah. Uh, I, I, did you know your neighbours could write? No, and I don't think they did either. That's the astonishing <laughs> thing. People took this on and they started writing away. And the next thing is they're totally absorbed in it. The only conversation going on in Old Connaught House, which is the house we live in, the only conversation was about this blinking book. We'd hardly thought about COVID at all. Right. Well, that's that. That can only be a good thing. Uh, and <laughs> and and for, and for each each individual writer, did they have a lot of latitude uh, to add in things they that they, that they well, felt like? Well, no, they were guided to one sense not to keep introducing too many characters, otherwise we couldn't we wouldn't be able to keep track of them. Right. Okay. But I was thinking maybe like somebody might fancy a gratuitous sex scene or something like that, just for you know. I think they knew that perhaps I'm too much of a prude for that. <laughs> so, I'm 92, don't forget. It's a long time since I thought about that sort of thing. Uh, but so, so you were the editor, I suppose. Would that be fair to say? Uh, no, uh, I, I picked, uh, I asked two of the writers if they would also act as editor and another writer uh, if he would act as our sort of press man, if you like, because we knew uh, possibly it would be quite a good idea to see if we could get the press interested in what we were doing. Right, OK, because, you know, as, as you'll know, uh, it, when it's just one writer and an editor, sometimes that can be uh, a little bit tense. I imagine if you're uh, an editor and you're dealing with seven, eight writers, that's kind of tricky. Yeah. Well, this is, of course, why we, the writer on the book, the name on the book is Lot of Folks, because 11 people is a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now it's the, the book itself. Is it, it what, what what genre of book is it? Uh, crime mystery. Right. Okay. So it, it, is it a kind of a traditional whodunit kind of book? Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly what it is. Uh, and can you tell us something about, if you like, the the inciting incident for the story? Yes. Well, the, first of all, it's uh, the story of what happens in a house called Beacon Court which is a facsimile, if you like, of old Connaught House where we all live, mm. but set up about uh, four or 500 yards up the hill behind us and looking down on us, and both houses being built in the, the early 1700s, and the two owners being somewhat rivals of each other. But in the modern day, whilst the uh, old Connaught House where we all live has been turned into apartments, uh, Beacon House had and Beacon House had also become apartments, it had become the home of people who were actually all criminals. So we had all sorts of fun and games going on with uh, people trafficking, uh, smuggling, uh, murder, uh, theft, faking, all manner of things. And they all go on in, in Beacon House. This super productive Alan Granger from Moncrief. And uh, one of the problems that people have got in touch with us about is uh, people who are housebound, people who are housebound and are in cohort one, two, three or four. So they should be getting the vaccine now, but they haven't got it and have had no word of it when they're getting it. Uh, Declan Wilkes is on the line. Uh, his grandmother features on the front page of the Sun newspaper today. Declan, I understand your grandmother is 98 years of age. Is that right? She is, yes. And still no vaccine? No, and uh, we're a little bit worried now about when that even might happen. There's been little to no communication that she was even in a, a third subcategory, as it is, nor that it was 
now divorced from her GP and was in the hands of the ambulance service and HSE. And it's just left us twisting in the wind. And from what I hear, there's maybe 14 on average being done in the West. And we're not exactly up in the mountains. We're on the N67. It just, it's just very, very worrying as to when it's actually going to happen. And even up to this stage, we've just not had the, the any reassurance or timeframes. Uh, it just feels like we've been forgotten. Was there much relief in your family and, and was your, your grandmother relieved when that vaccine rollout started? Because I assume at her age, she probably thought she was going to get it fairly quickly. Uh, that's what we all thought. Um, this would be the second time we've been passed over now. She receives care at home but wasn't in that uh, residential care category. So we thought, okay, Grant, you know, we're in the second uh, second wave. But uh, that hope has just ebbed away now as the the kind of touch points of family have uh, passed. And uh, it's, it, it was almost worse having the, the hope of it and then just being forgotten. And... When you want to find out where you are, or sorry, where your your grandmother is on the list and when she might get it, I mean, who do you call? You talk about kind of falling between two stools or twisting in the wind. Who do you pick up the phone to? You tell me. It's 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 been that shoddy in terms of uh, information that we, we haven't a clue where to go to. When we asked uh, our GP, she said, contact our TD. Um, <laughs> it's, it's exasperating. The, I've contacted the, the HSE Back in January, like, you know, what's what, what's the kind of um, roll call of this? And they directed me to a PDF, which had no mention of the housebound and had no mention of um, anything to do with care received at home. It's just been completely falling between the cracks, evidently now, as people are um, are speaking up. And is is your grandmother worried? Is she anxious? Is she frustrated? How is she taking it all? She's depressed. Um, I think it was when she kind of saw the president on TV, she just kind of nodded her head and sagged back in her seat and said, I'd, I'd been forgotten. They made a tough stuff this generation, but um, after the whole year we've had to, to get to this point where there's hope and uh, just be completely absent in the minds of our, our leaders uh, or our decision makers, it's, it's left her in a bad place. Um, and I didn't want to be having this conversation with you on Radio, I don't want to see no. my grandmother on the front of a newspaper. No one does. And we're not the only ones, as we know. But to who who do we talk to? Who are, How else do we get people to, to pay attention to this, this forgotten group who I'd argue are probably the most vulnerable of the vulnerable? Um, yeah. Stuck at home in that cohort with no one to advocate on their behalf and no one to, to call them and reach out. But it's awful to think of her depressed about it Declan I have to say and and it was it was seeing the president getting vaccinated on the telly that that was a, a turning point for her it, it just kind of hit home it was it was symbolic I mean obviously the uh, president gets vaccinated <laughs> that's fantastic that's yeah but um, story, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. it just <laughs> but it just kind of crystallized like like that happening and Wednesday's briefing that you know we've done that cohort let's move on with no mention of the housebound whatsoever that's that's just left us all quite quite a quite empty um there's just an all too casual attitude to this i've seen some of the reports uh, from whoever hsc is in charge of this saying you know we're going to start in dublin and then we're going down the south it's not a roadshow it's not it's not a tour it's it's very important stuff so they just need to get a grip of this and, and step up big time we're not it's not a moonshot you know people every year get their flu vaccine at home by a nurse yeah, uh, it, it's just it, it mind boggles.
Some strong words there from Declan Wikes. From the heart shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. Last time, Kieran, loads and loads of texts coming through, including the the immortal line that I don't. Know, some texters have to say, I have to add it in. Some listeners, for once, I agree with you. Yes. Good morning, Shane and Kieran. For once, I agree with you. The vaccine priority list was developed to vaccinate those who are at highest risk of dying if they get COVID. Absolutely right. Then move on to those at next highest risk of dying, and so on. It was not designed to prioritise those being exposed to or worried about getting the virus, because we all are, or indeed those who see themselves as the most deserving for whatever reason. All the world medical research has shown that age is the single biggest risk factor for death from COVID infection. So cop on people, so says Connor. Connor's dead right, of course. Uh, another listener says, I would be so furious if I got long COVID as a result of being in a class with 34, uh, 34 11-year-olds packed into a class. The threat isn't only about dying. Uh, another one says, I am a teacher, I'm in my 30s and I couldn't be any happier with the new vaccine rollout plan. I don't worry for myself. I worry for my older relatives. Vaccinate people at risk of becoming extremely ill from COVID rather than those who are just at risk of getting COVID and recovering. Regardless of what our unions say, I'm happy. Why do teachers, says another listener, feel they are more exposed than supermarket workers if they pull a stunt over the change in the vaccine rollout regarding allowing first-year students back? I'd be livid. Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. Jackie Foley is on the line with us here at Lunchtime Live from Cork. Jackie, tell us about the tweet you posted last night. Hi, how are we doing? Good. Um, I uh, I suppose I have a teenage daughter and I've noticed for quite some time that the concept of taking or making a phone call was just taboo. Um, and she'd rather communicate with, you know, in any other way, whether it's text, Snapchat, anything, rather than uh, put herself through. And it was an ordeal put herself through um, even making a call to a family member, ringing a takeaway, anything. So something was on my mind. And I, 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 to be honest, I was associating it with young people. And I was Mm. wondering, was it a lack of confidence? And I suppose it was out of concern because I was saying, if it's a confidence thing, how will they cope with, you know, face to face? And I, I got the impression that it was being put on the spot. So I put up this tweet just saying, um, you know, uh, does anybody know why a lot of teenagers will avoid talking on the phone? Um, and, uh, you know, do they think there was a confidence thing or and, and, and the concern around the level of communication skills? Yeah. And I was amazed at the response. I saw your tweet, actually, um, and I myself was surprised at the, uh, the, the response because it's obviously something that a lot of people, Jackie, have, have noticed and maybe just hadn't talked about. Oh, and I mean, first of all, the, just the, the level of the response was incredible and you know, there were some fantastic and insightful responses. Um, you know, everything from, uh, and, and the age group, it certainly is not an issue that's confined to young people. As a matter of fact, I had a gentleman at 85 years old saying, you know, like all his life, he's been anxious around calls. People of all ages, my own age, and I'm 51, a, you know, huge number of people saying, you know, they would rather communicate in any way. They find it, and it, I suppose the reasons for it um, varied. Mm. People find it intrusive. Uh, a lot of people think it was a hassle, um, you know, to get uh, a phone call and whatever, because it was demanding a response immediately. And it was not taking into account uh, what was going on in their time and space. Um, some people finding it even rude. Somebody said that receiving a phone call was like somebody turning up to their house unannounced um, and, and felt it was quite intrusive. Uh, the yes. idea of um, receiving a voicemail uh, again, you know, uh, it was like forcing them to respond and, and to call back. And again, that was something that was, uh, you, you know, a no-no. 
Um, but I suppose then there were a lot of people who said that um, people, uh, you know, who were uh, neurodivergent and those especially who suffered anxiety found the stress of a phone call huge. And there was one brilliant response from um, a lady who took the time to go through a seven-step process that she goes through in order to make a call. And as I was reading this, I could feel the stress. I could feel the stress, you know, uh, how, uh, when the they call was being made, will it be the person that she requires answer? If not, what will she say to the next person? How long do you um, wait before you try and wrap up the call? Or the person in advance of the call went through a planning process for multiple possibilities in order to get through the call. And that definitely came across as a very, very stressful thing. So, so from, from and of course, we know young people are so brilliant with communication. Yeah. They use so many platforms. Well, they, it's all stuff where you don't have to communicate with people, though. Or, you know, it's all through messaging apps and like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm relatively young and like when when we first had mobiles, say back in, in the 90s, there was no WhatsApp or Facebook or Bebo or, you know, Instagram or, or any of that. It was just phone call yeah. and and text message. Um, and I'm a real phone call person. I absolutely love to ring people because I just think you can get to the point far quicker. I hate I hate texting people. I'm much more of a chatter on the phone. Um, so but but I wonder it, with with younger people now and when people that don't like communicating with people on the phone is it to people that they don't know or is it like you know do they ring their friends or is it just maybe in the in the in, a, in you know in a work instance or maybe if they're ordering something or they need to check something is that when they don't like doing it well it seems to be across the board some people say socially um that they might make a call but again it's pre-arranged there seems to be absolutely a no-go on this spontaneous pick up the phone you know, that they will receive a call if somebody contacts them in advance saying, you know, when is good for you to receive a call from me? And then they can prepare for that. But this thing of, the, you know, the phone ringing and then picking it up, it's just not an option. Right. Um, and even socially, that's the case. And they use so many other platforms in the same WhatsApp. They also, what seems to be really popular is the idea of them leaving, um, you, you know, sending these uh, uh, voice messages. Uh, where oh, yeah, they, the voice they, notes. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, a fan notes, of them yeah. now. And that seems to be a popular one. But I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's definitely not confined yeah. to young people with the response I got. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Cooking food is, is, is slightly different, um, and I want I wonder what how we evolved to cook food and what advantages were there for that. Did, did we evolve that, or did we just lean towards that because it was more delicious? Do we know? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and the honest answer is we don't know. But but I can kind of walk you through how people are thinking about it. In, in that uh, we know that, that humans prefer cooked food, gorillas prefer cooked food, chimpanzees gorillas. prefer cooked food, dogs prefer cooked food. That's, you mean, you mean if, if we feed them, we, gorillas haven't mastered fire yet, right? You're, you're no, talking no, about... Thank, thank God, I mean... <laughs> right, okay. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, if our dogs mastered fire, we'd, we'd be up a creek. Uh, yeah. So if, if we fe- feed them cooked food... There are cases of chimpanzees eating food items from areas that have been burned. So a fire sweeps through and they go in and grab things. But, okay. but generally speaking, these are experiments where somebody prepares something in a kitchen and brings it out. 
And so there seems to be like not just in a human context, but across a number of mammals, a preference for cooked foods. And, and so then the question becomes, what is it about cooked foods? And was this an adaptation or is it so something built into the brain and then fire sort of intersects with it in a lucky way? And what Harold McGee has argued, and I find it quite compelling, is that one of the features of cooked food is especially if you get the Maillard reaction going. And so you get all this caramelization and this complexity of aromas. That Just, just to interrupt there, Rob, the, the Maillard reaction is that browning um, of the steak, uh, which, uh, which makes it taste so good. Go on. Yeah, and, and, and takes it from having, you know, tens of different kinds of aroma molecules to having hundreds of kinds of aroma molecules, many of which have not even been well characterized by scientists. Right. And, and so when that happens, the complexity of a, of a cooked meat or a cooked root even becomes much more like that of the complexity of a fruit. And, and so if you imagine maybe our ancestors were uh, primed to look for things with complex aromas because those tended to be good foods for them. And then fire was a way of making foods we otherwise wouldn't like very much uh, to give them, them those same kinds of features. And, and so I think that's a plausible um, argument. It's not been well tested. Mm. But we, we do know that there does seem to be this innate preference. And so you can imagine that once our ancestors could control fire, that suddenly they could make their world more flavorful. And then there would have been advantages to doing so. But but for both Monica and for, for me, I think that that initial uh, choice is actually more interesting. Like, why do they first do it? Not what does it give them? Yeah. And it seems like it's just tastes better. It's more flavorful. Um, but, but wouldn't evolutionary um, theorists, wouldn't they say it, it couldn't have just tasted better. It, it, we've selected for it to taste better. Isn't that, I mean, it doesn't yeah, it have I, I, to be that way. Well, I mean, um, we could have some sort of uh, pre-existing bias to enjoy it. And, and then you might imagine the individuals with that bias for enjoying it would be more likely to survive. And so it would, there'd be, why, a why is that? Is there, is there something beneficial to cooking food? I remember um, we had Harold McGee, McGee, the great sort of food scientist on the program. And he was saying something along the lines of it, it freed up our, our, our sort of resources by cooking food. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so one of the things that happens is there's more energy typically in a cook. There's more ca available calories in cooked food than raw foods. There are exceptions to that, but in general, especially for roots, you know, you take a sweet potato out of the ground and chew on it and uh, you're, you're not getting many of the calories, but you cook it and those, the starches break down, you get more sugars. And the same is true of meat. Um, the other thing, if you're thinking about meat is the cooking kills pathogens. And so if you have meat, that's not totally fresh, you've suddenly made it more safe. And then you've also uh, softened it. And so it's way easier to chew. And so if you look at the daily life of a chimpanzee, like 37% of the time is spent chewing. And, and so there's a, a, a displeasure in the eating experience. But, but if you're eating cooked food, way less time goes into chewing. And, and so the experience, even if that's not quite flavor, is more pleasurable. Some fascinating insights are from biologist and writer Rob Dunn from Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. And of course, you can tune into Jonathan every Saturday afternoon from 12 till 1. Now, uh, Barry, you've been speaking to uh, teachers and parents and uh, they seem to think that schools should be a lot safer, Barry. 
Yeah, Pat, I have. And look, I have to highlight, nobody I've spoken to have said that schools are unsafe here. For the most part, they are. But there's certain things schools and teachers have no power over. You know, if pupils are gathering in groups after school or going to each other's houses, there's nothing teachers or schools can do about that. But the teachers I've been speaking to say more needs to be done. Class sizes should be smaller. You still have class sizes of between 25 and 30 pupils. And this makes social distancing almost impossible. And when there is a positive case in a school, teachers are telling me not enough people are then being tested as close contacts. Any teacher I have spoken to have also said they believe the number of cases in schools um, or have been linked to schools have been consistently played down. And Pat, as we know, schools are on their Easter holidays now, so there may be teachers listening. So what do they think? Are schools currently safe? Text us on 53106. But here's just some of the teachers I've been speaking to. Uh, they're based in counties Carlow and Offaly. And they told me just what it's like in schools at the minute. Is there social distancing in schools? Um, well, I have to say school management have gone above and beyond to try and make sure that there's social distancing in schools. But it's not possible without nearly a thousand people in the one building. Every 40 minutes the bell goes and classes change over. And uh, nearly a thousand of us are in the corridors, all up against each other, no social distancing. Um, masks are worn but generally, or a lot of the time, under their noses. Um, same old mask from Monday to Friday for a lot of them. Sometimes they tear the mask off, answer back, leave the room. Um, they have tantrums, they spit on the floors, spit on the walls. And we're in the, we, the teachers, are in the middle of all this. Can schools be made safer? I have felt from the very start that half classes should have gone in. Instead of schools being closed, outright fully closed classes should have gone in half days so or half classes like maybe one week half the year group in and the next week the other half it's better than being closed um do i believe the amount of cases in schools are being played down um by the government and the Department of Education, absolutely, yes. Well, I'm a teacher in County Offaly, uh, which has the highest incidence rate in the entire country. Um, there should be widespread antigen testing. It's been done, it's been introduced in, into Northern Ireland. It's an effective thing to be done. It's happening across the EU, yet Minister Frody says that there's no need for it to be done here. I think it's entirely unacceptable. It would make schools safer. Anxiety levels among staff in the school, both teaching staff and ancillary staff, are through the roof. Teachers have migraines in the evenings, they have anxiety, all sorts of mental health issues because they're severely worried about the impact of this on themselves and on their families. It's, it's quite galling as, as a teacher with over 10 years experience to hear Minister Foley say that there's no need for antigen testing, to say that schools will open as normal when cases are rising nationally. And to say this from the comfort and the security of the convention centre, because it's unsafe to come into Dáil Éireann. And Pat, it's not just teachers who've been telling me that they're worried. Some parents are also worried about sending their kids into schools, especially the parents of children with underlying conditions. And this mother, who has an eight-year-old daughter with cystic fibrosis, says if schools were safer, it would make her and her family feel less anxious. I have two children in primary school and one of them, my daughter, has cystic fibrosis. Despite having cystic fibrosis, the current advice is that our daughter should attend school because her health is stable at the moment, thankfully, and prolonged isolation of vulnerable children can be very damaging for their mental health. 
Um, while the medical advice to attend school obviously gives some reassurance, as does the fact that the majority of children seem to do okay with COVID. Um, there are exceptions though, as we all know, and when you have a child who's been hospitalised regularly with other more regular respiratory viruses, you can't help but worry what the implications of her catching COVID would be. You know, you really just don't want it to happen. So while we're trying to trust that advice to attend school, the reality is that as a parent, it's hard to put your child in the car every morning and let them walk into that classroom. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. Now, Off the Ball this week featured a very special interview with the great Liam Griffin. Here's John Malloy. What about fate generally? I was uh, listening to you and you were saying even back in the Wexford days, before going out on the pitch, everybody might say a, a prayer. So is fate, has that been a big part of your life throughout? Yes, my parents were very religious, to be fair. And I'm a practicing Catholic and and uh, and I'm actually proud of it. I had a phone call from a man two days ago, Walter Gallagher, and we talk about the clergy and all the things. 50, 62 years in Africa. Absolutely uh, get a life to it. Maura Galloway's sister fought with Imelda Marcus in the Philippines, went up and wound up in, uh, back out in Chile, helping, you know, the underprivileged. All of these wonderful people that came from a religious background that were my next door neighbours. I was lucky. I grew up in a terrace of houses where we were in guards' houses and we lived in each other's houses. If I was hungry and my mother was out, I went next door and grabbed the bread and just had bread and jam on my back hurling again against the wall. Hmm. You know, it was an amazing kind of a, but they went off to do that. So I would say that I was obviously inculcated with that. And it was a great example. And you know what? It hasn't done me any harm. And yes, we didn't scream and roar in the dressing room going out. We knew what we had to do before we went out. We did well planned. And we're in his dressing room just before we went out. We said, right, let's say a prayer. And thank God we're here. And thank God for the opportunity. And uh, it wasn't anything that, you know, that anyone rejected. Some of those lads mightn't have a belief in the world. But you know what? It certainly was, was something that I felt We'd taken care of physical fitness. We'd taken care. I knew we had what we'd done on the training side. We'd taken care of all of the mental side. We'd brought in a psychologist when it wasn't normal. We had done all our stats. We knew what we were doing. We knew what was the best we could possibly be. We had followed a fellow called Shooter Bumper on the training manual of when he was leading the world leader at the time. We'd covered all of those things, endurance, speed and strength. We'd done all of that. So why wouldn't we take care of the spiritual side? Because, mm. you know, why not? We had done everything else. So mm. why not? And it wasn't tokenism, it was genuine. And I believe it, I believe, I believe it helped us, you know, I yeah. do. And I believe it helped me. Uh, I remember the night before the Ireland final, I went to Our Lady's Island, which is a place not far from me, which is a place of pilgrimage in Wexford. And I went there when I knew there'd be nobody there, it was going to get dark. And I sat down on a bench. The sun was going down just, and I have to say, I sat on the bench and I never felt so calm in my life. And I made up my mind that I was going to be the calmest man in Crow Park the next day. That was my goal. That's what I was going to do. I had to keep my head, despite the crowd, despite everything else, and not be distracted. That was my job. I wasn't that I was going to Crow Park. I had a job to do in Crow Park. I needed to focus what's the job I have to do. And now I'm a one in a row All-Ireland with the manager. Mm, okay. <laughs> you know, don't over get, get over carried away with your uh, achievements. One in a row is all it was. So I feel, I feel uh, a bit of an imposter when you're talking about the Brian Cody's and all these fantastic managers mm. and Sean Boyle and, sure. and Mick O'Dwyer yeah. and Kevin Heffern and, and Jim Gavin and all those fantastic managers that have done that for so long. I just yeah. I, I bow the knee to them every time. They're the no, men. I... Joe Malloy and Liam Griffin from Off the Ball. Suzanne takes you down to her place 
First aid kit as heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Ballymun's a great community. Ballymun's a great community and always is. What can you do when we're COVID? Like, you can't do anything, there's nowhere open. It's that they're affecting all the kids from a younger age up. Open crack cocaine dealing. Why has it become public? Sell what you want. Here, listen. Don't take it. Sell what you want. Do what you want. Stop it. It's bad. It's real place. It is crack cocaine initiative. Yeah, it is, yeah. You can only bring the horse to the water, you can't make it drink it. And, and can we make, I suppose, Ballymont drug free? Can we improve it because it's location? Yeah, never it's make it drug free oh, anywhere. Never going to happen, mate. Never, never. They can keep 
loud in them police stations, they're never out of I can smell a little bit of marijuana, a little bit of grass, which obviously is on the lower end. Would you smoke it much? <coughs> every single day, but every day, every single day, all day, every day. And would you <laughs> see it a, a gateway <laughs> drug? Man, I'm just smoking on me and chill out, have a lap with the boys now, man. <coughs> Keeps us calm now, man. Get stressed out, have a joint, you're fresh. We look smashing someone's head in and have a joint. No, man, you just have a joint and then you're fresh. And do you worry about crack cocaine? Don't give a rat's about that, bro. Is it around? Is everything's around. It's alright, it's a nice place, yeah. How would you improve it? What would you do? The drugs, the bikes, for example, the gangs. And how do we get through to that 3%, 97% according to this report, our law-abiding 3% on, and we can yeah. hear the scramble behind us? If the, if the parents really stepped up and looked after their kids, boy. Do you see crack cocaine open dealing in the street now and again? I see it all the time, yeah. So people just do a deal in the street and then walk off again? Yep. Walk off, that's it, drop it, pick it up, that's so it. you drop it and then pick it up? Yep. And the scrambler is very loud, and I know that's obviously on the lower end. My name is Andrew Montague, and I'm uh, the chair of the Drugs Task Force in Ballymun, and I'm a resident here for the last 20 years. And I've just written a report about uh, drug dealing and crime, and the number of young people that are being sucked into crime in this area. But there's so much good going on in the area that I wanted to highlight that and that's in the report too and there's so many uh, good people living here and one of the interesting things that the report shows is that uh, more than 97% of people in Ballymun have nothing to do with crime it's fewer than 3% are involved in crime so you know this is a great community and that's why I called my uh, report A Brighter Future, Ballymun A Brighter Future because there's great prospects in the area. We can uh, really change this community but what I want to see is more supports for children and for families so that the next generation grow up in better circumstances. We've been here before, you know, the 1980s, 15 years ago when they started to knock down the towers. There is a brighter future. We can hear kids behind us, kids are playing. It's looking very, very tidy. Uh, I can't see any letter where we're standing. The, the rise of crack cocaine, uh, talking of the negative side too, and that 3%, just 3% that are involved in crime, are they bringing down the other 97%? Well, they're having a big impact because one of the things that's happening is that there's a lot of open drug dealing. So that means children... My children can see people selling drugs. Um, and it's not just the drug dealing, it's the violence that goes with it. People getting beaten up on the street, pitch battles at times. So that's the thing, that's having an impact on everybody. And people then are, you know, sometimes they're embarrassed to invite family and friends over because they're afraid of what might happen outside their door. So it's having a huge impact on the community. And I think some of those really negative aspects, like the open drug dealing, if we could tackle them, we'd make a big difference to everybody who lives here. It's okay to live and if you keep to yourself, mind your own business. That's all you have to do. Oh, God, you don't know jobs, playgrounds and stuff like that. How do we improve Ballymon? How do we make it better? Look, when, when you do walk around, you can see just mad stuff happening. And you look in, in broad day, look. So what sort of things? Like, it could be a drug deal, like, or it could be, like, no, just something like you're thinking, how is that happening? And, like, no one's going over there to see what's happening, like. Yeah, it does be happening in like it does be happening in broad daylight as well. Like, and why would there be open drug dealing? Personally, I don't think the guard is trying enough in this area. Like people would do a drug deal in front of you because I don't think the guard like actually try that much to get me.
I had people like come up to me asking, do I say and I'm like, no, I don't say Like they would ask me, do I have stuff? And I'm like, no, I'm only going shop or something. Like, it's rough though, because it's not just happening in here, like it's happening like in all of Dublin. So it's not just Ballymun, but it is mostly like coming from Ballymun because like, it is a bad place to live and being honest, but just have to deal along with it. What do you love about Ballymun? It's a lovely place, yeah. The community and all. The community is great. So you like the community? Yeah, the community is grand, yeah. One place, I don't, I don't like the police in the place. They don't leave us alone. We're only young flits, you know what I mean? We're all neighbours, we're all friends. And, and what would you like to improve? Improve? Give us a motorbike trek. Yeah. So you do have a scrambler and they've changed the law. And believe it or not, the authorities can now take the scrambler from you. Yeah, but we're not going to stop them. Greenfield insurance. So you're on the field, are you? Yeah. No, yeah, we go onto the roads if we can't come up onto the field and chase us. Out onto the roads, nanny's doing we've never been long to those pans of two litre milks. But they can knock, knock on your door. Now they have a rule. Knock, knock, who's there? F*** off. Henry McKean reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. On Sunday, documentary on News Talk explored the Apollo programme. Here's a short clip. Once the TV sets were switched off, though, there remained a desire to mark the Apollo programme in different ways. As Dublin's need for housing grew, so did the need for names for streets and estates. I took a trip to the Woodville estate in Coolock, where Dublin City Council's historian-in-residence, Cormac Murr, explained the boom in housing in Ireland in the 1970s. Well, I suppose before the 50s and 60s, this was pretty much green fields, farmland. There was one or two houses, big houses, big farms. Um, but there was a huge housing, uh, public housing uh, uh, growth uh, in the 50s and 60s. And this transformed pretty much overnight. So you had, you had loads of five-bedroom houses, four-bedroom houses, three-bedroom houses built over a very short period of time. That is what happened to Coolock and Artane and uh, um, Edenmore and Rohini. Like all of this area just became um, a huge suburb of Dublin with, with thousands of houses pretty much overnight. Most people that uh, uh, live here now have, have done so or, or their, you know, their family has done so since, uh, since these estates were built. So they've actually, most of them have actually good memories of uh, living in the tenements in Dublin, you know, living in apartments, um, not having space and then going from a, from a situation of having no space to having you know, four or five bedroom houses. It just, it, it, they didn't know, you know, you know what, what was I think of, of this situation. Um, they also um, lacked amenities though initially you know there was a like schools had to be built churches had to be built um, transport had to be arranged to get into town um, you know grocery shops entertainment uh, venues so that, that took a while to uh, um, um, to get all, all of those um, um, amenities in place after the houses were built so th- they missed some of what they had from the old days particularly close to the city but they definitely loved the space and the you know bathrooms and toilets and uh, all of these luxuries that they never could have dreamed of before. Well obviously with all of the new estates being built around the area they had to get names and this is, is, is called Woodville Estate so many people said it should be Woodville Court, Woodville Green, you know Wood, Woodville Close, all of these names um, however someone decided look this was uh, this just after the moon landings of July 69 and someone decided why don't we call them after the, uh, the first uh, mission successful mission to the land on the moon 
and uh, it, did, it did get like some people uh, thought it was crazy some people call them spacers and moonies um, but it, it did get uh, public support within the community um, so now we're actually standing on Apollo Way and, and you can see the names the way they're named as well so you've got Apollo Way so Apollo was the obviously the, the module which brought them to the moon um, the two people who walked on the moon are Armstrong and Aldrin and they're called Armstrong Walk and Aldrin Walk you've got they landed on the Sea of Tranquility you know, which is a pretty much a crater, a grove. That's called Tranquility Grove. That's just up there, up the road, is it? Just up, up the, the road there, yeah, yeah. And then you've got um, Eagle Park, and obviously the eagle has landed. It, eagle Park. Now they actually had uh, a Collins rendezvous, but they had the rendezvous with him, uh, Aldrin and Armstrong afterwards. But that, they actually um, decided to change that in '77. Uh, so not only did Michael Collins not to get to land on the moon, he also had his uh, the name, the state Collins rendezvous uh, that was actually removed. In 77, they ha- had tried, some people had tried actually to uh, remove all the names. They wanted more normal names like Woodville Court, Woodville Close. And uh, so they had a poll. And four, four out of seven ratepayers had to change a name. But the only one that changed was uh, Collins Rendezvous to Woodville Court. It is a funny story in many ways. You know, you've got Apollo Way and you know Aldrin Walk and Armstrong Walk right in the middle of Coolock. It, it, you know, it, it does raise a lot of questions. And, and when you talk to people about it, you go, what? What a terrific story from picking up some dust on documentary on Youth Talk. OK, I'm going to leave you with now a classic email sent in to So You Think You're an Adult. Have a great weekend. I've become so used to my own company in lockdown over the last year that I no longer hold in the farts and I let rip at my leisure. I've completely stopped considering if there might be sounds or smells released with any that I do. However, I had a moment of realisation that I was just farting as I pleased the other day when in the supermarket (laughs) while in a queue. I just farted. It was loud. I took no notice until I looked around at several disgusted faces. How did you know? They should have been all wearing masks. Then I realised what I did and went completely puce. I was stuck in the queue, so I had to stay where I was. Otherwise, I would have legged it. Is anyone else doing this? How have I lost 37 years of being polite and considerate to one year of living like an animal? I'm quite shocked at myself. Have others lost manners in the lockdown? Please tell me I'm not the only one. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.